Our text for this morning is found in the, Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're in chapter 1, starting in verse 18 this morning. Galatians 1, starting in verse 18. The apostle writes this. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is God's word. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your word tells us that unless you build the house, its builders strive in vain. Father, in the same way, unless you speak through me and through your word, We're wasting our time here. Unless by your Holy Spirit you illumine our minds, these words will fall on deaf ears and hard hearts. So, Father, speak to us this morning. Edify our hearts through your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, nearly 502 years ago, April 18th, 1521, something very important happened, took place at a, a conference, a trial called the Diet of Worms. It has nothing to do with eating worms or eating in general. It's a day that lives either in infamy or glory, depending on which church you are a part of. It was the day that the former Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, stood trial before the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V., And before the church of Rome. What was Luther on trial for? What was his crime? 
His crime was his theology, his understanding of the gospel, his understanding of what the scriptures taught. He was on trial for his refusal to submit to the Roman church and to the Pope, and he was on trial for his proclamation that the scriptures teach that one is justified, made right before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Luther said, but this is what the Bible teaches at his trial. I'm summarizing. The council, the church, the Pope said, no, it's not. They said, this is what the church teaches. And Luther said, show me from Scripture where I am wrong. And they essentially said, no, recount, recant, bow to the authority of the emperor and to the church. They asked him to recant. This went on for a couple days. They asked him to reject and retract all that he had been teaching in Scripture. Luther knew that if he refused, he would likely be burned as a heretic, just as Jan Hus was a hundred years before him. He was nervous. He was scared. He asked for a day's pause so he could decide what to do. And eventually he came back and they asked him one last time, recant. And so he spoke to them, and this is the end of what he said. He said this, before the emperor and before his accusers, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. By the gracious providence of God, Luther was kidnapped by his friends and hidden away in the castle of Wittenberg so he would live. But we must ask this question, what drove Luther to this point? What, what gave him the courage to defy the Pope and the known church at the time and to defy the emperor at the cost of his own life? Why would he not simply bend to their authority? And the answer is fairly simple, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. Luther had studied the scriptures, he had seen from the scriptures themselves the truth of the gospel, and because he had seen that, he had seen in the church the errors that they had been propagating. Because the truth of the gospel was at stake, because he had seen the truth in the scriptures, he would not, and he said, I cannot recant, would not be safe to go against the scriptures and to go against God. He stood firmly on the word of God for the sake of the church to protect and preserve the true gospel, a gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. The truth of the gospel was at stake, so he could not and would not back down nor submit to the authority of the Pope. In this morning's text, we're going to see a similar but different scenario in Paul's life, a time like Luther's where the very truth of the gospel is at stake. And we'll see how we responded. And we'll see, based on Paul's example, where Luther drew his inspiration. And so this morning we continue in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And with 
As with every letter in the New Testament, it's important to know the context. Why is this letter being written? What are the circumstances surrounding it? So let me just remind you quickly. Paul, on his first missionary journey, had planted these four Galatian churches. It's a, just a province, a region of the Roman Empire named Galatia. Months after he had left, months after he had left, false teachers came into the churches and began to undermine everything that Paul had taught them. They began to undermine what he had, the, the very gospel that he had proclaimed to them. These, these false teachers came to Galatia to rescue Paul, rescue the churches from Paul's false gospel of freedom in Christ. Paul's gospel that was opposed to God's law. Paul's gospel that was opposed to circumcision and the tradition of their fathers. Paul's gospel that was opposed to Abraham. This is what they were saying. And the worst thing about it is, this is why Galatians take the, takes the tone that it does, the Galatians were falling for it. They were buying into these lies that were being peddled to them. So these Galatian churches were in limbo. They're, they're trying to decide which way are they going to go. Are they going to stay with Paul and his gospel? Or are they going to desert Paul and go with the gospel of these false teachers? In the end, the choice really is between Christ and the enemy. Would they come back to the true gospel or would they follow a false gospel into damnation? That is the situation here. Now, the question is, that's very important to continually remind ourselves, is how did these false teachers convince them is? What what was their strategy? What was their argument? And it essentially has, has two prongs to it. Number one, they were attacking Paul's teaching. So they were giving biblical arguments from the scripture, and this is what Paul deals with later in Galatians, of why Paul was wrong. They were claiming that to be truly saved and truly be a follower of Messiah, Jesus, you had to become Jewish. In all that that meant, men had to be circumcised and everyone had to follow the Mosaic laws, without which you could not be saved. They were arguing it from the scripture. So they were attacking Paul's teaching. But number two, they were attacking Paul himself. They attacked his credentials. They were saying he's not a real apostle, or if he is a real apostle, he's he's confused and he's sold you a wrong gospel. They were claiming that, that Paul himself had learned everything he knew from the true apostles in Jerusalem, and these false teachers were claiming to be speaking for those apostles in Jerusalem. They were claiming Paul changed the true gospel so that it would fit better in a Gentile context. They were, again, claiming that Paul was under the authority of the Jerusalem church and he was wayward in his mission. So in our text this morning, really in in chapter 1 and most of chapter 2, Paul is arguing against that second attack, against himself and his credentials. He'll move later to the biblical arguments But in our text this morning, Paul addresses this attack. We saw this last week. He addresses how he received the gospel. And in this section, Paul is proving to them that the gospel he preached to them is a gospel for justification by faith alone, and it's the true gospel because it is the gospel that he has received, not from some other church, not from some other human, but from Jesus Christ himself. He didn't learn it from anyone He didn't learn it from the other apostles. He's not under their authority. His mission and his gospel came from Christ. He had shown this in verses 11 and 12. He said, For I would have you know, brothers, 
that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's his thesis statement for this whole section. In verse 13 and 15, we learned about Paul's miraculous and 100% gracious conversion by the power of God to Christianity. And we learned that after he was converted, he didn't consult with anyone. He didn't meet the apostles for years. And so our text this morning continues Paul's story and his defense of himself. And in our text this morning, we hear from Paul about two times that he did meet the apostles, two times he did go to Jerusalem, and what happened there. And also we see what happens in between these two visits, and this is crucial for his defense of his apostolic ministry. Now, the way I want to organize the sermon this morning is by the word then. We have three then words here, and it kind of details his journey. So look first at verse 18. We have our first then, and that's Paul's first visit to Jerusalem. The first time after he becomes an apostle that he goes to Jerusalem. Look at verse 18. He says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing you, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. So here we find out that Paul didn't go to Jerusalem nor meet any of the apostles until three years after his conversion and three years after the beginning of his ministry. So he's been doing ministry for three years at this point already when he finally meets Peter and James. And he's only there for two weeks. He meets James. This is Jesus' brother, the one who wrote the book of James. And he meets Peter, also known as Cephas. And to tie it all up, he swears to the truth of this account with a solemn oath before God. What a meeting this must have been. What it would be like to be a fly on the wall the first time that Paul meets Peter. Can you imagine? And James. Think of these three men and their life stories. Three men who each one of them wrote inspired books of the New Testament. Three men, all of whom were martyred for the faith in Jesus, their faith in Jesus later in their life. Paul, who once persecuted the church. He saw the risen Christ. He believed. He planted churches all across the Roman world and would later be beheaded by a Roman sword for his testimony that Jesus is Lord. You have the Apostle Peter, who once had denied even knowing Jesus. He denied Christ three times, but he too, like Paul, had seen the risen Christ, and he had believed in him. Peter, like Paul, had a great and wonderful ministry and was later Martyred for his faith, he was crucified upside down, tradition tells us, on a Roman cross for his testimony that Jesus is Lord. And James, the brother of Jesus. This is not James the apostle, but it's James, Jesus' brother. The whole time Jesus was alive, James denied that he was the Messiah. It'd be pretty hard for anyone to believe that their brother was God in the flesh, right? But James, too, like Paul and Peter, had seen the risen Christ, and he believed. And later, he, too, was killed for his faith. Tradition tells us he was thrown off the top of the temple 
He didn't die, and so they stoned and then beat him to death with clubs for his testimony, again, that Jesus is Lord. Three men who went from unbelief to faith in Christ, purely by the grace and power of God. Three men who were unashamed of the gospel because they knew firsthand that it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. What did they talk about? For two weeks they sat together. Paul doesn't tell us what they talked about because it's, it's not really the point. The only hint he gives us is that he had gone to Jerusalem for the purpose of getting to know Peter, Cephas. He went there to get to know Peter better. They probably shared testimonies. They probably shared stories of, of their ministry. Paul probably shared with Peter his experience of meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, and Peter probably told him stories of what it was like to live and minister alongside Christ. Now, here's the other thing to think about that I think is just fascinating. Paul did most of his persecuting in Jerusalem. Him and Peter, while maybe they hadn't met, they had for sure heard about each other. They were arch enemies. Peter was constantly trying to escape Paul and his persecution, and Paul was constantly trying to hunt down Christians, drag them into prison, and kill them. And now Peter's welcoming him into his home. Imagine, imagine, now this is speculation, but imagine being there and hearing and seeing Paul or Peter welcome Paul for the first time as a brother in Christ. Imagine the prayers they had offered for Paul on his behalf, obeying Christ to pray for those who persecute you and seeing how Christ had worked in Paul and brought him now into the fold and watching Paul's ministry as one who had probably thrown in prison and killed people that Peter knew, watching him plant churches all across the known world. That's the beauty and the reconciling power of the gospel of Christ. It can take arch enemies and make them into brothers and partners in ministry in an instant. Now, that's fascinating to think about, but again, that's not really Paul's point here. Paul's polemical point, his argument is that he didn't really spend that much time with the apostles. He was only there for a couple of weeks, and it hadn't been until three years after he had already started his ministry. It's not enough time for whatever the false teachers were claiming to have happened. And just to reinforce his point here, Paul swears an oath before God, making it absolutely certain to the Galatian churches that his account is the true one. And my guess, again, is that his account is different than what his opponents are telling them. So he says, look, this is my testimony. I swear before God that this is what happened. And so that's his, his first time to Jerusalem. After two weeks, they send him off to Syria. Now, he doesn't say this here, but in the book of Acts, it tells us that it wasn't because they wanted to get rid of him or that he necessarily wanted to have a short visit, but because he was preaching so boldly in Jerusalem that the Jews were trying to murder him. And so the disciples are like, it's time for you to go, Paul. We, we kind of want to have you around for a little bit longer. So he, he escapes to Syria and Cilicia. So that's our second then. Then number two, he's off to Syria. Look at verse 21. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, 
And I was still unknown to the per- in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. Why does Paul go to Syria and Cilicia? He doesn't say. My guess is, it's a, a region familiar to him. His hometown, Tarsus, is in Cilicia. So maybe he just heads home as kind of a way to get a refuge. Either way, we know as he goes, he preaches the gospel. He stays there for a while. Again, the book of Acts tells us that it's Barnabas who goes up and finds Paul in Tarsus to bring him back to Antioch to do some more ministry. But again, Paul's point is pretty simple and straightforward. He didn't have contact with anyone else in the Judean churches, the the churches that were in the region where Jerusalem was. The, the primarily the most Jewish churches, Paul's, I didn't have any contact with them. I never even saw them in person, but they did hear about me. The news about Paul was making the rounds in all the churches because, again, he was the primary persecutor of the church. He's been converted, and now he's preaching the gospel more boldly than hardly anyone. So you can understand why news gets around. His conversion was radical. It was the talk of the church But Paul makes careful to note, I I didn't talk with them, I didn't know them, they didn't even know me. I'd only been there for two weeks, and then I was out of there. And their response to this news of his conversion and his ministry, and again, he's, he's subtly implying to the Galatians and to these false teachers that have invaded their church, this should be your response to my gospel, to my ministry. They glorified God because of me. This is this is the desire. And the aim of all true ministers of the gospel, the glory of God. Not the glory of themselves, but the glory of God. And so again, he's kind of subtly hinting to them, look, all the believers in Christ, all the other churches were glorifying God because of my ministry. So these guys who've come in and they're preaching against me, they're preaching against what God is doing among our churches. He's making them out to be enemies of the gospel, and we'll see that more clearly as we go on. He's still kind of tilling the ground and preparing it for the arguments he's going to give later. To be, to to recognize Paul's ministry, Paul's ministry then, is to recognize the ministry of the gospel and God's mission. That's his point here. But let's move on because I really want to focus on this next section of text. And this is then number three, Paul's second visit to Jerusalem. We're going to spend the rest of our time here. We're going to kind of take it section by section because there's just so much richness in here that we're even going to miss a lot of it this morning. But look at how he starts. He starts by telling us when. When did his second visit to Jerusalem happen? Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Okay, so a lot of time has passed since Paul began his ministry. 14 years, probably from his conversion is how he's Dating that. 14 years in, Paul had only been to Jerusalem once. It's at that point that he goes again. Again, he's saying, had nothing to do with Jerusalem. So that's the when. The who, I went up again to Jerusalem, verse 1 still, with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now here's where it starts to get interesting. At this point in Paul's ministry, Barnabas had become one of his greatest advocates and one of his closest ministry partners. It was Barnabas. When Paul was converted, the church was very, very slow to accept his profession of faith. 
Many of the believers, I mean, imagine, it'd be like if the foremost leader of ISIS converted and then came into the church and was like, I'm, I'm a Christian now. Everyone's kind of like, uh, sure, yeah, okay. Um, they weren't sure if he was trying to play some game, but Barnabas said, no, he's a Christian, let's believe him. And Barnabas kind of was his advocate to the church until they fully accepted him. Barnabas was the one who, after Paul had gone to Syria and Cilicia, Barnabas was in the church at Antioch, and a great ministry had begun to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit fell on Gentiles, and Barnabas' thought was, we need Paul. I want Paul here with me to help teach these brothers and sisters. So he goes all the way to Tarsus, finds Paul, brings him back. They're like this. So Paul and Barnabas go down, go, well, they go up to Jerusalem together, and they bring Titus. Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile Christian, zero Jewish blood, but a believer in Jesus Christ. And this is kind of where the crux of this issue goes, and we start to see some of the main themes of Galatians emerge. This is the same Titus, by the way, who Paul writes to later in the New Testament. Now, why did Paul go up? So we've got the when, the who. Why did he go up? He says in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation. Did the Jerusalem church summon Paul? No. Paul and his team went to Jerusalem, not because they told him to come, but because of a revelation from God telling them to go there. What was that revelation? We don't really know. He doesn't say. Maybe it was a private revelation that he received, as he does at many points in his journey in Acts. I don't think it's that. It could be. I think it's what goes on in Acts 11.27. Fits the timeline perfectly. In Acts 11.27, we get this. It says this, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples, this is the church at Antioch, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So they pooled their money, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, who is Paul. I think that's the revelation it's talking about. Doesn't matter either way. He goes up because of a revelation. And I think this also fits with verse 10, which we'll see at the end of our time. So Paul goes up. What was the purpose of the meeting? Look what he says. So he went up because of a revelation, and so while he was there, he set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, this section raises a lot of questions, questions that we have to answer so we can understand and, and figure out what's going on here. So while he's in Jerusalem de delivering this money, Paul calls a private meeting between himself and what he says is those who seemed influential. Now, that kind of sounds sarcastic in English, um, depending on how you read it, but it's not in the original language. What, what he means is those who are of good reputation or those who seem to be an authority in the church. He uses that phrase three times, and, and what he's doing here is he's trying to thread this needle here. He's being very careful with his language. He's on one hand trying to show, and we'll see this later in our passage, that he respects the leaders of the church of Jerusalem, that he's on the same team of them, 
as them. The apostles were there, Peter, James, John, and yet at the same time, he's trying to show that they are just men, and because of that, they hold no authority over him. They have no special authoritative office that makes them above him in the church. They're all equals in the sight of God. There's, there's no hierarchy. There are no infallible authorities. So that's why he keeps using this phrase, those who seemed influential, the ones who seemed to be leaders. So just a quick note on that. There's, there's no hierarchy in this Jerusalem church. So think about this in regards to Roman Catholicism. They would tell you that Peter was the first pope. He was pope in Rome, and before that, he was the head of the church in Jerusalem. There's no pope in this text. There's no head of the church in Jerusalem. It's an unbiblical doctrine. We see this in Acts 15 as well. It developed over time, this idea that there's one person who is the universal and head of the church with all the authority. It doesn't come about for another five or 600 years. The Jerusalem church was not operating this way. The church in Rome is not operating this way. And even the idea that there's an infallible head of the church, that isn't even declared or defined until 1870. Okay, so none of that is going on here. So sorry, Rick Warren, the Pope is not our Pope. There is one infallible and authoritative head of the church. His name's Jesus Christ. Okay, it's not Peter, it's not James. That's why Paul is very careful with his language, those who seemed influential. So he calls this private meeting so as not to cause controversy. He's not trying to stir up some big debate. He's also, I think, calling this meeting privately because he's not sure how it's going to go. And what is he doing here? He sets before the leaders of the church the gospel that he preaches to the Gentiles. Now, here's, here's, this is very important. He's not trying to get their approval And it's not because he's doubting whether or not his gospel is the legitimate gospel. It kind of sounds like that. Because he says, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. It sounds like, well, maybe he's not sure if he's got the right gospel. So he's like, hey, is this, let me tell you what I preach. Is that right, guys? Are are we on the same page? That's not what's going on here. Think about this phrase. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. That is what the whole book of Galatians is about. That's what's in debate in, the, in this letter. The gospel that Paul was proclaiming among the Gentiles is a gospel of full inclusion into the people of God, of Gentiles, not by circumcision and by obedience to Torah, not by becoming Jewish, but by simply believing in Christ by faith. That's the gospel he was preaching. It's the gospel the false teachers in Galatia were preaching against. Their gospel was Yeah, the Gentiles, they can believe in Jesus too. Um, They just need to become Jewish. They need to get circumcised and follow the law, and then they can be saved. And it wasn't just them, apparently. There's a group within the Jerusalem church, we'll see, that's teaching the same thing. So Paul takes his gospel, sets it before the leaders of the church, so that he wanted to make sure he was not running or had not run in vain. What does he mean? He's not trying to get their approval. He's not trying to make sure his gospel is correct. What does he mean? He wants to make sure that the leaders of the Jerusalem church have the true gospel. Here's why. It's kind of a pragmatic concern in a sense. If the Jerusalem church were to succumb to a false gospel of circumcision and law-keeping, it would destroy Paul's ministry. It would ruin his God-given mission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. 
If the Jerusalem church, an, an ethnically Jewish church, had bought into a false gospel, they could greatly hinder God's mission, which Paul knows is to, for salvation to go to the ends of the earth, to all the Gentiles, to bring in the people of God. You see, Paul knows. He's clear in Galatians. Paul knows he's on Jesus' team. He's making sure the Jerusalem church is as well, and he's not sure, and we don't have time to go into it, but this idea of the Gentiles coming in without the marks of circumcision, without obedience to Torah, was very hard for Jews at the time to understand, even believing Jews. There's a lot dedicated in Scripture to this controversy. One commentator puts, he describes this like this. He says, the apostle was not fearful that the content of his gospel message was wrong, but that the vision of Jew and Gentile united together in the one eschatological people of God might collapse. So what happens? What's the outcome of this meeting? Well, he doesn't leave us guessing. Look at verse three. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So there's Paul's answer, and he'll answer it even more clearly later in our text. The leaders of the Jerusalem church were preaching the same gospel as Paul. They were preaching Christ's gospel. How does Paul know? They showed it by not forcing Titus to be circumcised. A Gentile believer in Christ. Now, I don't know, maybe there is this thing in scripture where everyone always knows who's circumcised and uncircumcised. I have no clue how they all know this all the time. It's really weird, okay? But like, it. It's just a question that always bugs me. Everyone always knows who is and who isn't. I don't know. That's beside the point. And think about this too. This is kind of funny. Paul brought Titus on purpose. Okay, Paul knew what he was doing. He, he brought Titus as a living, breathing test case to see how the leaders of the church would respond to him. He kind of wanted to, I, I think he wanted to put a face to the Gentile believers in Jesus, to the Jews in Jerusalem. What would they do with this Gentile? Would they accept him? Would they force him to be circumcised? I want to know how the conversation went between Titus and Paul. Hey, Titus, I'm going to Jerusalem. You want to come? <laughs> sure, what for? Well, I just, I want to see if they force you to be circumcised. I mean, Titus must have had a lot of trust in Paul. I don't, know what, I don't know what plan B was, but they didn't force him to be circumcised. That's Paul's point. Paul was happy, and I'm sure Titus was even more happy. So Paul sets his gospel before the leaders of the church. They approve. They say, yeah, that's, that's the same gospel that we're preaching. They don't force him to be circumcised. Praise God. God's mission of one unified people, Jew and Gentile, will go forth. Now, again, we know just because of the timeline that there will still be some bumps along the way, but it will go forth. The church in Jerusalem is on the same team as Paul. They're on team Jesus. But there's a problem here. Not everyone was happy about this. See, the, Galatia, the false teachers in Galatia preaching this gospel of circumcision this was not the first time that Paul encountered these people or these types of people. He encountered it even in his meeting here. Look what he says in verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, look at his language, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Look at this language that he uses to describe these people and their actions. You see what he's doing? Again, he's, he's subtly hinting to the Galatians 
that the false teachers that have crept into their church were the same ones that he dealt with in Jerusalem. Paul's essentially saying, I've dealt with these types before. You're listening to and submitting to their teaching. That's not how you should respond to them. Let me show you the correct way to respond to this garbage. He'll show us. Look at what he calls them, false brothers. In other words, they're members of the church. They call themselves Christians. They say, we believe in Messiah Jesus. But they are false, pseudo-Christians, undercover agents of the enemy sent in to sow division and confusion and false doctrine. And Paul says, to bring Christians into slavery. Now look at how he describes their actions. They're secretive, subtle. They slipped in. They crept in. Spy. Spy on the freedom that true Christians have in Christ and to bring Christians into slavery. This is how false teachers operate. They don't announce their motives. They don't announce that they're false teachers. They come in the name of Christ, always. Satan's not stupid. And so we must be aware. And Nobody hates freedom like people who don't know freedom. And I'm not talking about political freedom. The freedom we have in Christ. The enemy hates it and false teachers hate it because they don't have it. So what is he talking about when he says freedom? Our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Now, he'll get into it later, but let me summarize. The freedom is this. The freedom that we have in Christ from the condemnation of God's holy law. God's law, and this is where the false teachers were right, right? False teaching always has elements of truth in it. That's why it's persuasive. God's law is holy and righteous and good. Came from God himself. It's an expression of his character. But here's the difference. Because we are sinful, we can never keep it perfectly. We have fallen short. So God's law condemns us. It condemns every one of us. We cannot earn any sort of righteousness by trying to obey God's law. And in fact, his law was never meant for that. Paul tells us that clearly later in Galatians. His law instead was to expose our helplessness, to expose our sinfulness, and to send us fleeing to God for mercy in Christ Jesus. So in his life, in Christ's life, He fulfilled the law in our place. He took our sins upon himself on the cross and buried them in the depths of the grave. And he rose again in power, defeating and vindicating every claim that he made. And so Paul says in Romans 8, and this is why he can say this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the freedom that we have in Christ. That's the freedom that false teachers hate. We have no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then watch what he says. Here comes the law. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. There's freedom in Christ Jesus. From what? From the law of sin and death. Brothers and sisters, our righteousness that we have before God by faith is the righteousness of Christ himself. That is the freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the law's condemnation. Freedom from God's wrath and freedom from the slavery of trying to earn our righteousness before God by our own pathetic, fleshly obedience and works. We are united to Christ 
by faith. And since the law cannot condemn him, it cannot condemn us. But the enemy hates this freedom. So he constantly, he did it back then, he does it now. He sends in false brothers to try and re-enslave God's people to the condemning law that Christ had set us free from. And so the false teachers come. No, 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 no. You're not free from God's law. You must obey it if you want to be saved. You must be circumcised. You must follow this. You must follow this or you are not saved. What is Paul's response? How does he respond to these false brothers? Look at verse 5. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul's saying many things here. One of the things he's saying is, hey, Galatians, I fought these guys already so that I could preserve the truth of the gospel so that you could believe it, and now you're going back to it. Stop it. He doesn't yield in submission even for a moment. He didn't give one second of submission to these false brothers and their teaching. He didn't compromise because to do so, to do so would be to forsake the very truth of the gospel. To do so would not only impact Paul, but everyone that came after him, because it would be to fail, as he says here, to preserve the gospel of Christ Jesus. Because the essence of the truth of the gospel is the freedom that we have in Christ by faith. So Paul here gives them an unyielding opposition. That is the correct response to false teaching and false brothers, to those who would seek to enslave us again. This is the correct response to those who seek to to peddle these gospels of of law-keeping and works righteousness, and you must do this to be saved, and do this to be saved, and do this to be saved. Paul is again telling them, this is how you should have responded when they came to your church. When they crept into your church, and by extension, this is how we should respond to these things. Now, there's the question. Is this still a danger today? Do these things, are there still false brothers peddling false gospels? Absolutely. Now, there's not really anyone seeking to tell us to be circumcised, but there's all sorts of false gospels out there. I was a part of a college group years ago. Two, they did, it's like they followed this plan, but they were false teachers. They crept into the church. There was two guys and were really nice to everyone. They made relationships with everyone, and we kind of noticed that they were they were kind of weird, though. They would always like split up and sit at different tables and come to find out that they, they were inviting people out to like coffee a lot. And we were like, okay, you know, you don't want to be too suspicious. But then we heard they had a Bible study that they were inviting people to. They were false brothers. They, they were part of what now you might know as the mother God cult. They had come into the church to try to take sheep away and invite them to their false teaching. And if you don't know what that is, you can Google it. It's like, yeah, Jesus came as a Korean woman. It's, it's, it's a cult. This absolutely happens, and not just with stuff as blatant as that, but the enemy hasn't ceased to work. Satan hates the church, and so he directly opposes it in some instances, and in others, he sends people in to distort the gospel and steal the freedom we have in Christ in whatever way he can. Now, obviously, he can't steal our salvation, but he can really mess us up if he can get us to believe that we need to work to earn God's favor. 
there are many false gospels, like this one of works righteousness. Anyone who says you need Jesus, faith in Jesus, that's good. They'll all say, yeah, that's good. But here, you also need this thing over here. That's a false gospel. You need Jesus, and well, obviously you need to be circumcised. False gospel. You need Jesus, and you have to be baptized in our church, otherwise you're not going to heaven. That's a false gospel. You need Jesus, but you also have to have obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. That's a false gospel. You need Jesus, but obviously you also have to have good works or you're not going to heaven. That's a false gospel. You need Jesus, plus the mass and penance. False gospel. You need Jesus, but you better demonstrate that by speaking in tongues. False gospel. You need Jesus, but you also have to adhere to our very specific system of theology, otherwise you're not saved. False gospel. You need Jesus plus anything. Jesus plus submission to the rules and regulations of some religious society. False gospel. They're all over the place. So what do we do in the face of these and other gospels? Other gospels. We must do what we must do. Sorry, I'm misreading my notes here. What must we do knowing that false brothers and false gospels exist and that the enemy is seeking to use them against us? We must not despair. Christ will have his victory. But we must protect our church mainly. We must be watchful and alert. We shouldn't be ignorant. We shouldn't be naive. Instead, we must be like Paul is here, and he's telling the Galatians this is how they should have been, vigilant. Don't forget, false brothers, false teachers claim the name of Christ. So just because someone says they're a Christian, just because someone says, oh, I believe in Jesus, that doesn't make someone a true Christian. This is the problem in Galatia. They had just said, oh, these guys say they're a Christian. They're from the Jerusalem church, so obviously they're teaching the truth. No. Look at what they're teaching. Look at what they're believing. Now, Paul has given this, this responsibility. Well, the Bible gives us responsibility. God has given this responsibility to protect the church, to be watchful, essentially to, to two groups. And they're overlapping. Number one, he's given this responsibility, this, this role to pastors and elders. That's why you see one of the qualifications of an elder in Titus chapter 1. He, this, the elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Okay, so to teach good things. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. So a pastor and elder is on one hand supposed to be knowledgeable in doctrine so he can teach it rightly, but also to refute those who teach it wrongly or who are believing wrong things. Now, not everyone who believes wrong things is a false teacher. Some people just don't know better. They've been taught poorly, so he's not saying that. But there are times when a pastor, as, as John Calvin says, must use a voice to fight off the wolves. And Paul continues right after this in, in verse 10. He says this, so he must be able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. For there are many Many, Paul says, who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, there's that deception element again, especially those of the circumcision party, so they're still around, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So pastors are called to oppose those who endanger the truth of the gospel because endangering the truth of the gospel not only endangers people's salvation, but it endangers the unity of the church. 
We do this in our preaching, in our teaching, in our counseling, and even as we interview people for membership. One of the things we're trying to do is guard the membership from false brothers. Number two, this responsibility God has given to the congregation, to you, the members of the church. We are a congregational church, which means that you, the congregation, have the ultimate authority and responsibility. Your job as members of the church is about a whole lot more than just voting to approve budgets. It's, it's about, I mean, again, remember this, think about it this way. Paul's writing the letter of Galatians. He's not writing to the elders and pastors of the church. He's writing to the churches of Galatia. He's rebuking the churches of Galatia saying, you should have known better. You shouldn't have put up with his teaching. He's writing to congregations. So how does a church exercise this responsibility? How do you as members of the church exercise this responsibility? Well, number one, by only voting in members who believe the true gospel. That's pretty straightforward, pretty simple. But number two, by voting in pastor, elders who are qualified according to the scriptures. It's the congregation who ultimately chooses who will lead them. By removing any pastor or elder who submits to, to use the language here, or preaches a false gospel. It's again, your responsibility to guard the doctrine of the church, and you do this by exercising those powers that you have. And number three, ultimately, is by removing anyone from membership who has stubbornly submitted themselves to a false gospel. It's the congregation, again, who holds the keys of excommunication and church discipline. It's not us, the pastors. We can recommend things, we can lead, but it's the congregation, ultimately, who has the authority. So you and I, all of us, are called to be watchful, to be alert, to be acquainted enough with the truth of the gospel that we can recognize even the slightest distortion of it. And like the Apostle Paul, we must refuse to submit to a false gospel, even for a moment, for to do so would compromise the church itself, and it would fail, and we would fail, to preserve the precious truths that have been handed down to us. Now, let's go back to that room in Jerusalem for a second. Look at verse 6. What's the conclusion of the meeting? Paul's language here is all over the place. He's, he's, kind of, he's got a lot of commas and long sentences, but what happens? So he doesn't submit to the false teachers. Look at verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, there's that, that phrase again. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. In other words, Again, he's saying we're all on the same playing field here. Those who I say seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted, I love that word, with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, when James and Cephas and John, here's John for the first time, he's the one who wrote the book of Revelation, who seemed to be pillars. Again, this word seemed, they were leaders in the church. When they perceived the grace that was given to me, in other words, that Paul was an apostle, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now don't worry, I'm not going to exegete every little jot and tittle of this text. The result of the meeting is clear, full agreement. Paul is on the exact same page as the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. 
Paul had laid out his gospel that he had received from Christ before the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Remember, it's more of a test for them. He laid out what he had been preaching to the Gentiles, the gospel that he aimed to take to the ends of the earth, and their response, that's exactly what we're preaching, brother. That's exactly what we're preaching. They added nothing, Paul says. They added nothing to him. They added nothing to his gospel. They didn't say, okay, that's good, but can you also tell them to be circumcised? Okay, no, that's good, but can you also tell them this? No, Paul says they added nothing. No law-keeping, no circumcision. They added nothing. They essentially said by giving Paul the right hand of fellowship and Barnabas, go and be blessed, brother. Take the gospel to the Gentiles, and we will take the gospel to the Jews here in Jerusalem. It's not two different gospels, just different spheres of ministry. They had different target audiences, so to speak. And when Paul went out, he preached to Jews as well. But that's kind of his main area. They only asked him one thing. Paul says, okay, you know what? Yeah, they asked me one thing, to remember the poor, which by God's providence was the very reason he had come to Jerusalem, to deliver money to the poor Christians there. And Paul would continue to honor this request all throughout his ministry. In every Gentile church he plants, one of the things he does is take up a collection of money to send back to Jerusalem to support the poor Jewish brothers and sisters there. And by doing that, I mean, he's actually, he's supporting them financially, sure, but one of the things he's doing is, and God is doing through this act of giving, just like John told, told us earlier, he's uniting the Gentiles and, Christ, and Jews together in the church by saying to the Gentiles, look, Your new brothers and sisters, even though you haven't met them, even though they're Jews and you guys have never had any interaction, they're poor, the best way to show them your faith in Christ, send them money. They need help, and so they do. The gospel that Paul preached to the Gentiles and the gospel that Peter and the other apostles preached to the Jews were the same gospel. It's the gospel that was given to them by Christ Jesus himself. And it is a gospel of freedom, because it is a gospel of Christ's victory. It is a gospel of freedom from condemnation, freedom from sin, freedom from God's wrath, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from trying to earn our own righteousness. The false gospels of this world, then and today, were invented by men for the glory of men. The true gospel was entrusted to men by God for the glory of God. So by the grace of God, may we believe the true gospel, may we persevere in the true gospel, and may we also be ever vigilant in contending for the truth that was once for all delivered to us, the saints. Amen. Let's pray.